0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Thursday, the 18th of January. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. A crucial aid convoy is heading to Gaza after a deal was struck to provide medicines for Israeli hostages and more aid for Palestinian civilians. Qatar and France brokered the deal between Israel and Hamas, the first agreement between the two sides since a week-long ceasefire ended in November. In the meantime, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has held talks with Palestinian leaders in the West Bank as she continues to call for peace in the Middle East. Her meetings follow yesterday's talks with top Israeli officials. Our Middle East correspondent Alison Horn was with the Foreign Minister when she visited the West Bank. Alison, who did the foreign minister meet and what was discussed?
1: Well, Penny Wong says she needed to go to the West Bank to convey the views of Australians. So she met with the Palestinian Foreign Minister and the Palestinian Prime Minister. She also met with local Palestinian residents who spoke of what life has been like for them under occupation since the October 7 massacre, remembering that yesterday Penny Wong also met with the families of Israeli hostages being held kidnapped inside Gaza. Now, Senator Wong says she gave Palestinian leaders her support for pursuing a two-state solution. She called for peace. That was a big key theme of the day. Multiple times we heard her talking about peace and the need for peace for both Israelis and Palestinians. And she again expressed her support for a ceasefire in Gaza, which is something that Palestinians are also calling for. She says they also spoke about the deteriorating humanitarian situation inside Gaza Yesterday, Penny Wong announced $21.5 million of new funding specifically to help conflict-affected populations in the occupied Palestinian territories, which includes Gaza. This is what she told me a short while ago about her discussions around this humanitarian issue.
2: I didn't just express my concerns. What I consistently sought to do is express the concerns that Australians have, uh, that you know, Australians are concerned. Uh, with the loss of civilian life, which is mounting. Australians are concerned with the humanitarian situation in Gaza, which is dire, Uh, and uh, that we want to see uh, uh, civilians protected and we want to see humanitarian access.
0: So Alison, how important are these meetings in the West Bank?
1: Well, symbolically, they are highly important, not necessarily for the people of this region, where Australia isn't really a key player. But this is the most senior Australian official to visit here since the war. And what she says here is being closely watched by those back home, both supporters of Israel and Palestinians. Now, we haven't really heard anything surprising on this visit, which is quite diplomatically delicate. But the fact that Penny Wong has gone to the West Bank is significant. The last time she was there was about 10 years ago on a study tour. So her presence in the West Bank is significant because she is doing this wider diplomatic tour here. In Jordan yesterday, tomorrow she'll be in the United Arab Emirates. Both of those Arab nations condemn this war in Gaza and want to see a ceasefire. So for Penny Wong to travel into the occupied territories will be seen by some in the Arab world as a sign of understanding and solidarity from Australia. Remembering yesterday as well, Israel also said her visit in Jerusalem was also a sign of solidarity.
0: Correspondent Alison Horn. Political pressure continues to mount on major supermarkets, with Queensland Premier Stephen Miles today meeting executives from Coles and Woolworths. He's venting his frustrations about the differences between what big companies pay farmers for products and the price shoppers pay at the checkout. Elizabeth Cramsey reports.
3: While the price of food may have increased at the checkout, so have costs for the ones growing it. Joe Shepherd is the CEO of the Queensland Farmers Federation. So we've seen significant increases in the cost of imports like labour, fertiliser, fuel, energy, transport, you know, input costs across the board. So on average, farmers are reporting an increased production cost of around between 35% and 65% over the last three to four years. While supermarket giants are recording bumper profits, farmers aren't seeing the same returns. Many farmers are saying... They've not seen uh, any uh, or very little movement in terms of their return at farm gate or uh, the price they're being paid for their. Produce uh, in as long as 10 years. So, some farmers have seen very little uh, increases, if any at all, um, over that period. The federal government's review of the food and grocery code is underway. At a state level, Premier Stephen Miles met with growers like Ms. Shepherd to discuss the way forward ahead of his meeting with the retail giants today.
2: I personally believe that that code should be mandatory, not voluntary, and that there should be sufficient penalties to deter supermarkets from price gouging.
3: The Voluntary Code of Practice requires retailers to act in good faith towards suppliers. It also contains a complaint escalation process which ultimately requires complaints be made to an arbiter. So why wouldn't farmers contact the arbiter? Rachel Chambers is the CEO of Queensland Fruit and Vegetable Growers. She explains the arbiters are paid
4: for by the retailer they're paid for by them but they're called independent which you know that's one of our our gripes we don't think that they should be attached to the supermarket that they're supposed to be independently re- representing the grower to. they are the recipient of zero if not just a very few people who complain a lot of those people don't want to leave their details because they fear commercial retribution she says
3: it's difficult for farmers to then report
4: those alleged incidents. The grower knows that they've complained. The grower knows they've lost orders. But all the supermarkets can hide behind, oh, well, we found someone who could we could buy it better from. There is a genuine fear that if you speak out about any of these large corporates, your business will be impacted in one way or another and there's been multiple instances of this happening.
3: The peak body for retailers has been contacted for comment.
0: Elizabeth Cramsey. The latest wave of online scams is targeting high-profile Australian fashion, food and entertainment companies. It's catching out thousands of customers who use the same login details for different online accounts or store their credit card information on company websites. Oliver Gordon reports.
2: Experts say companies like Binge, The Iconic and Dan Murphy's have all been targeted in the latest round of credential stuffing cyber attacks. UNSW Professor of Cybercrime Richard Buckland explains what credential stuffing means.
5: If you're using one account, say Binge, and it gets compromised and bad guys learn your username and password from there, they think to themselves, I wonder if he also uses that same username and password somewhere else. And they try it. On the iconic for example and it looks like about one percent of the time they manage to get in
2: once hackers get into a user's account this way they're sometimes able to buy things with the credit card details you have saved
5: for some accounts they're able to buy goods without having to give the ccb number on the credit card again or without having to do multi-factor authentication you can just buy with one click easy for us but also easy for
2: the bad guy thousands of australians who have online accounts with local retailers have fallen victim to this latest scam Professor Buckland says there are a number of ways to avoid being next.
5: You never reuse passwords. If you just stop doing that, it'll stop 90% of the attacks on you.
2: He also recommends avoiding websites that ask you to save your details and reducing the credit limit on cards you use online. But Professor Buckland doesn't think all the blame should lie with victims. He thinks online retailers should be liable when things go wrong.
5: It's just not reasonable that they have an unsafe environment for us and then say it's our fault when things go wrong. It's the same as if you're walking through a shopping centre they've got to spend a fair bit of money making sure roof tiles don't fall on your head and that you don't cut your hands on the doors and and, and
2: physical things like that. Australian Retailers Association Chief Executive Paul Zara says cyber security is a major concern for business, but it can't act alone.
5: It requires collaboration beyond um, uh, just industry, and we hope to see more measures to support retailers in combating cyber crime in the federal budget.
2: Within months of coming to power, the Albanese government increased penalties for companies breaching privacy obligations. It's since committed to overhauling the country's Privacy Act. Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus says protection of Australians' online data remains a priority.
6: The government's also considering through its reforms to the Privacy Act how best we can make further changes to stop entities from collecting and keeping personal information for longer than needed and to ensure that personal information is handled and stored securely.
2: Is it time for minimum standards on websites so that if you've got credit card details stored, you must have two-factor authentication to stop what we've seen happening at the online retailer, the Iconic, in the last week? Do we need minimum safety standards for online websites?
6: Uh, Certainly, we are looking at making companies more accountable for keeping information secure. Uh, We are looking at reforms to the Privacy Act um, to make sure... That appropriate safeguards are taken, and certainly we're looking at further encouragement to businesses to make sure that they are not keeping data for any longer than they need to.
2: The federal government has committed to introducing updated privacy legislation this year. Oliver
0: Gordon reporting. From Olympians to villages, sexual violence is pervasive across India. But survivors and victims' families are fighting back, urging the government to deal with the crisis. And a warning, this story from South Asia correspondent Avani Dias has some distressing details.
7: Chandni lives in a tiny house on the outskirts of Delhi. We're in the room her nine-year-old daughter once lived in. All that's left are her bag and some clothes. Chandni's daughter was raped and murdered by their landlord in Delhi last month. I had only
8: one daughter. She was my eldest child. Only I know how much hurt my heart is feeling. Chandni and her husband
7: Raja have now been facing unimaginable horrors. They had to blockade roads in their village with their friends and family to force police to search for their daughter. They eventually did and found her body in a drain. And it took weeks for police to give them a post-mortem report.
4: Police swung into
3: action after we protested and blocked roads. Before that, they were not doing much. Then they caught the culprit.
7: National crime statistics show the rate of crime against women and children has risen between 2020 and 2022. Now, 13 women or girls are sexually assaulted or raped every hour on average. Chandni and Raja get warm in Delhi's harsh winter by burning rubbish. Yogitha Bhayana from People Against Rapes in India says studies show there's a direct link between poverty and sexual assault.
0: So you can understand the kind of uh, social fabric we have, the kind of social uh, structure we have. We don't have access to justice, we don't have access to the things and vulnerability becomes more when you are a poor person in this country.
7: In the last year, there have been constant headlines about horrific sexual assault cases. Prime Minister Narendra Modi came to power 10 years ago by standing on a platform of protecting and educating women. But victims and their families are calling for his government to do more.
3: Narendra Modi will have to act otherwise. These cases will increase.
7: This is Avani Dias in New Delhi, reporting for AM.
0: It's estimated 460,000 Australians live with intellectual disability. But as the Royal Commission heard in recent years, many struggle to get adequate care when they go to hospital. Now a team of academics is trying to change that by better educating medical staff, support workers and families. National Disability Affairs reporter Naz Campanella explains. Bev Libus has always figured out ways to communicate with
9: her son, Mark, who lives with an intellectual disability. But when he had a serious fall in 2017 and was taken to hospital, it was a struggle to make others understand what he needed.
1: We weren't happy with ten days waiting for a MRI. Mark had signs of spinal compression, as in he's
9: not able to walk, his hands were weak. Eventually Mark did have the MRI scan and it was discovered he'd fractured his cervical spine. He required surgery and rehabilitation, which involved using a wheelchair for two years before he could walk again. His mother says Mark's significant injury could have been treated sooner if medical staff had listened to her. We knew he was in pain, even though he couldn't express it himself. Mark's hospital experience isn't an isolated one. The Disability Royal Commission held several specific inquiries into the treatment of people with intellectual disability in healthcare, hearing horrific stories. Now a team of researchers from La Trobe University has developed a website including videos to help change this. The researchers looked at the experiences of 50 people with intellectual disability. Their stories have been used to create scenarios to walk medical staff, family members or support workers through ways they can better care or advocate for patients and their loved ones. Professor Teresa Ayacano led the project and says problems can often arise when medical staff aren't properly informed of a person's needs. That can be hospital staff not knowing much about the disability system or the role of the person who might accompany a person to hospital. Professor Ayakano's team looked at the positive strategies already being used across the sector. Those strategies have informed their training. As a group, they do attend hospitals more often, Five or six times more often than, say, the general population with multiple representations, despite the fact that hospitals seem to be doing their best to diagnose the problem. And she says some of the videos focus on how to interpret pain or explain medical concepts to people who might use different ways to express themselves. There may be people who use communication devices or signs that really rely on those people who know them well to help them to express what they need. Since his negative experience in 2017, Mark's been to hospital several more times. Those experiences have been much more positive. Mum Bev Libus is confident these resources will help others like Mark
0: in the future. Naz Campanella reporting. While there's plenty of research showing exercise can help cancer patients, it's still not commonly included in treatment plans. However, a project in Western Australia is trying to change that. Isabel Masali prepared this report.
1: Let's pop you on the leg curl machine. We're going to do one set of 10. OK. Pulling down as far as you can and slowly return that to the start position. That's good. Just a year ago,
8: 71-year-old Ruth couldn't stand the thought of a gym... But a cancer diagnosis brought her to this Perth clinic where she was paired with an exercise physiologist. And I can remember saying to her, no, I hate gyms. I hate doing that. I like, I'd rather be outside walking and golfing, you know.
3: And she said to me, oh, we'll, we'll fix that. I went, hmm. <laughs> and she, well, I have, really. <laughs> because, you know, I'm now, i you mean know, they call me the little gym junkie, but I'm not. It's not a gym. It's, um, it's not about that. It's about just feeling so much
8: better. During her radiation treatment Ruth became a regular here thanks to a free program for cancer patients and she's keeping it up even months later. She still loses her breath easily but tells me her muscles are working and she feels good. It's a bit of a lonely journey but
3: they've seen it all before and they know what to tell you to help you and so yeah I was incredibly appreciative of every single time I came down here. It didn't matter what you felt like there was always someone to help you and get you through it. So yeah, no, it's it was huge.
8: But Ruth's referral to an exercise program was against the odds. It's an issue Dr. Mary Kennedy knows well. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at Edith Cowan University.
4: So the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia, or COSA, has directed that all patients all patients with a cancer diagnosis should receive a discussion a recommendation and a referral to an exercise professional. Unfortunately, while that we know how important that is, that happens very rarely in practice. In fact, fewer than 13% of people actually receive any sort of
8: exercise discussion during their cancer treatment. Dr Kennedy is exploring how to boost that rate with the ultimate goal of getting an exercise referral to every cancer patient in WA. Right now, she's trying to determine best practice, and from there, the project will start a trial. Exercise will be embedded into several treatment sites through a three-year research fund from the Cancer Council.
4: We started with a doctor referral so that when the, every patient that saw their doctor, there was a drop-down box, the doctor opted them in, um, and we saw we still were missing patients. So we now have an opt-out system here in June and We're seeing nearly 100% of patients because it's just the same as a nursing appointment. They always can opt out if they don't want to, um, but we want to be
8: sure that everyone knows it's provided to them. And she says if you know someone who's living with cancer, or you are yourself, don't be afraid to give exercise a go. Things like
4: managing cancer-related fatigue, physical function, um, bone health, muscle strength, those are the kinds of things that we can help to maintain during treatment.
8: The project will also include mapping out all exercise services in WA to identify gaps.
0: Isabel Masali reporting. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers.